0: I am delighted that you've made your decision to be here tonight, and I hope you brought your Bible with you. We're here for a Bible study, and so if you have a Bible, I hope you'll get it out. Be turning to 1 Kings chapter 13. If you don't have one, perhaps there's one in a pew close by, or maybe you have a Bible on your phone or your electronic device. I encourage you to follow along with us as we study. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab sold himself to do evil, the text says, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. We call that selling and stirring. On Wednesday, we'll look at the question David asked concerning his own son. Is the young man safe? How do I know if he's safe? We'll talk about that on Wednesday evening. And then on Thursday, we'll talk about things that encourage. You may be surprised at the things the Bible lists as being encouraging. And what was done when the text would say they were encouraged. What did happen in that context? We'll talk about things that encourage on Thursday. And then Friday, we'll close by looking at the earnest cry of Bartimaeus. We'll talk about getting out of our rut. So if you don't already have your Bible open, I encourage you to turn to First Kings chapter 13. We're going to spend some time there. This is the story of two prophets. One that is identified as being old. The other we refer to as being young, though he's never called a young prophet. We call him young because he's in contrast to the old. This is a story that is in the context of the kingdom recently dividing. If you look back at chapters 11 and 12, the United Kingdom has now divided. And now we have the southern and northern kingdom. And Jeroboam has created altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. It is that which is under consideration, those altars that is under consideration at the beginning of chapter 13. And what we're going to be looking at are some very practical things that we learn from these two prophets that are found in 1 Kings chapter 13. I call chapter 13 for my own study simply a message from a prophet. That is this young prophet that comes on the scene. So let's work through the context. Let's outline the chapter and then we'll work through the context. And if you have a pencil, Or if you have one of those electronic devices and you want to underline or highlight, I want you to focus on a phrase that's repeated time and again. It's fascinating to me how many times the phrase is the word of the Lord. How many times you see it, how many times you find it right here in this this chapter. But here's what happens first in 1 Kings chapter 13. This prophet speaks against the worship by Jeroboam. I call that simply the warning of the man of God. Now, here's the first thing that he does. He cries out against the altar. Now, notice at verse 1 he begins, the text begins saying, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by, here's your phrase now, the word of the Lord. In other words, he went because God had directed him. And Jeroboam stood by the altar uh, to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar, here you go, by the word of the Lord. And said O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord Behold a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying This is the sign which the Lord has spoken and that is surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Now that's the sign that I'm telling you the truth. That I indeed am a prophet of God. So in verses 1 to 3, what's just happened? He said, the text says, this young prophet came and he comes to Jeroboam who's standing by the altar. And he cries out against the altar saying, the altar is wrong. This idolatry is sinful. And on you, Josiah, 300 years later, is going to alter the priests that are offering sacrifice on this idol. Evidence that I'm a prophet of God, this altar shall be split in two. Now then, beginning at verse 4, what takes place? Beginning at verse 4, Jeroboam sought to stop him, and what he did was witness three signs. So notice verse 4, that Jeroboam cried out saying, that he said at verse 4, arrest him. Stuck out his hand and said, arrest him. He didn't like what the prophet was saying. And the text says at verse 4, here's the first of the three signs, that his hand withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. That's sign number one. This is a prophet of God. All right, look, verse five. Then the altar also split apart, just like the prophet had said. It split apart and poured out the ashes according to the sign which the man of God had given, here's your phrase, by the word of the Lord. See, how much is being done by the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord is being fulfilled. The word of the Lord is being followed. They're talking about how one is going against the will of the Lord. So sign number two was that he saw the altar split apart. All right, now let's go to verse six. The king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored and he became as it was before. Sign number three, they get the picture. Here's the prophet prophesying against the idolatry. And in the midst of that, the king says, arrest him and stop him. And his hand withers and he can't draw it back to himself. That's sign number one. The altar splits, sign number two, restore my hand if you will, please. And it's restored. Sign number three. This indeed is a prophet of God. But let's go a little bit further now. And notice beginning at verse 7, the prophet is invited to the king's house. But he couldn't go. So let's go through from seven to ten. The king said to him, Come home and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God, that is the young prophet said, if you were to give me half of your house, I wouldn't go with you nor to eat bread nor drink water in this place. Well, why is that? Look at verse nine. You might underline. Key verse. For so I was commanded, here's your phrase, by the word of the Lord. There's your phrase. Saying you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. That's pretty simple to understand. He understood it well enough. He could turn around and explain it to King Jeroboam, couldn't he? It's three simple rules. Do not eat bread, do not drink water, and do not return by the same way that you came. So verse 11 says, or verse 10 says, he went another way and did not return the way he came to, uh, by the way he came to Bethel. All right, now I understand what's going on. The prophet came and he spoke and warned against the idolatry of Jeroboam. He cried out against the altar. Jeroboam tried to stop him. He witnessed three signs. He invited him to go home with him. He said, I can't do it because God gave me these three rules. All right. Now let's begin at verse 11 and finish the chapter. We now see the disobedience and the death of the prophet. Now let's notice in 11 through 19, the disobedience of the prophet, that is the sin of the man of God. What'd he do? Well, now verse 11 said there was an old prophet. We're now introduced to him. There was an old prophet there. What do we know about him? Well, I know this much that if the young prophet had to come along and be the one to prophesy and preach against this idolatry, this must be a prophet that was lax on his job. He must not have been prophesying and dealing with idolatry. Evidence of his apostasy being an apostate would be suggested by the fact that he lied to the prophet a little bit later on. He's not doing his job. Maybe suggesting why he does what he does in the context. But anyway, look at verse 11. The old prophet who dwelt in Bethel and his sons came to him and told him all the works of the man of God that was done that day And they also told their father the words that had been spoken to the king Now you got to get a get a picture of this in your mind Here are these sons. I don't know how many there were the text doesn't say but there was at least two Who come running to their father and said daddy you wouldn't believe what we just saw <laughs> Man we were over there and this young prophet came around and he started preaching against the idols and the altars and I want to tell you what he said. He said that, that it was wrong and he said, Josiah, somebody named Josiah is going to come along and altar, offer the priest on that altar and evidence would be that if the altar split and you know what happened, the king said, arrest him and his hand withered and then the altar was split that he wouldn't believe what we saw and then the king said, restore me and ask God to restore my hand and God did that. We saw things like we've never seen before. Look at verse 12. The father said to them, which way did he go? Which way did he go? For the sons had seen which way the man of God went. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode away. And he went after the man of God, verse 14. And he found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. All right. He said, verse 15, come home with me and eat bread. And he said to the old prophet, he said, I cannot return with you, nor can I eat bread nor drink water in this place. The verse 17, you might underline again, key verse and watch for your phrase. For I was told by the, here you go, word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. I know he understands it. So how do you know he understands it? He understood it well enough from God that he turned around and explained it to the king. And now he's explaining it to the old prophet exactly the same way he explained it to the king. He well understands it. But now verse 18, he said, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me, here we go, by the word of the Lord. This time it was merely a claim. It wasn't the word of the Lord saying, bring him back to your house, and he may eat bread, and he may drink water. But he lied to him. I know he was lying. You know how I know? For two reasons. The text says he lied, number one. Secondly, it was the exact opposite of the truth. You see, the truth was, do not eat bread. He said, come back and eat bread. That's the exact opposite. I know it was a lie. Do not... Eat bread. Do not drink water. Come and eat bread and drink water. Do not return. Come back back and eat to my house with me. It's the exact opposite of the truth. Now, I want you to notice in verse 19, what did he do? So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and he drank water. He fell for it and did exactly what this old prophet was encouraging him to do. Now, beginning at verse 20, let's talk about the judgment against the man of God, beginning at verse 20. While they were eating, verse 20, it happened that as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord, there's your phrase, but now notice this, came to him. Tells me it didn't come to him before. This is the old prophet we're talking about. That the word of the Lord came to him, the text says came to the prophet that had brought him uh, brought him back and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying thus says the Lord because you have disobeyed here's our phrase the word of the Lord and have not kept his commandment which the Lord God commanded you but you came back and ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you eat no bread nor drink water your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers well what's going to happen well, so after they had eaten and after they drank, he saddled the donkey and the prophet whom he had brought, for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he'd gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And the corpse was thrown on the road and paraphrasing for the next few verses, the donkey is standing beside the corpse. And so is the lion and the body was not torn. Verse 25 said, The passers by came by and they saw the body, and they saw the lion, they saw the donkey, and they run back to the city and telling it where the prophet was, the old prophet was. And here was his reaction, verse 25 It is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion and has torn him and killed him according, here's your phrase, according to the word of the Lord. Used twice in that verse, by the way. Now, verse 27, he said to his sons, saddle the donkey. Here's a footnote, I've got, I, I have to tell you, I wonder about those boys. What kind of donkey did it took two sons to saddle up? It either, they were incompetent boys or the donkey was wild and it couldn't be handled. But nonetheless, it, it makes me wonder about those boys. But in verse 27, he says to the boys, he said, saddle up the donkey and they saddled. Him. So he went and found the corpse and loaded the corpse up and brought him back. And I want you to notice what he said. He laid the donkey, laid the the corpse upon his own donkey. And notice when he came back, notice at verse 30, he laid the corpse in his own tomb and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Alas, my brother. At this juncture, he seems now to have some respect for the young prophet. And notice what he says at verse 32. For the saying, he said in verse 31, so it was after they buried him and he spoke to his son, when I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. Why is that? For the saying which he cried out, here's our phrase the last time he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines in the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. This was a true prophet is what he's saying. Alas, my brother. I want you to notice three things that we just noticed in this context. Notice on the screen. We deal here with the warning of the man of God. We deal here with the sin of the man of God. And we deal here with the judgment of the man of God. This man of God gave a warning. This man of God sinned. And this man of God faced judgment. Now, let's build some lessons from 1 Kings. Alas, my brother, story of two prophets. There's some practical things we learn, and let's begin listing those. Here's the first thing I learned from this context. I learned, first of all, that the word and instructions of the Lord are clear. The word and the instructions of the Lord are clear. Let's go back to verse 9 in our context. Don't leave your chapter there. Put a marker or a finger there. We may go to other texts, but we're going to keep coming back to 1 Kings chapter 13. How much clearer could this be in verse nine? Verse nine says, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. How much clearer could that be? That's how he's explaining it to Jeroboam. When he gets to the old prophet, he says to the old prophet, the very same thing. Do not eat bread, do not drink water, and do not return by the same way you came. Pretty clear, isn't it? And so why do we need to make that emphasis? There are many today who think the Bible is hard. And the Bible is difficult. The phrase used by some of our own brethren, it is unclear. The Bible is unclear on that subject. And what that means is, since we think it's unclear, we can't be firm. We can't be sure. And we certainly can't draw a line we can't come down hard and say this is wrong and this is sinful and anyone who practices that is contrary to the will of God because the revelation of God is unclear on that matter, you see. God's revelation is just unclear. But I'm here to tell you that we can know and we can understand the truth. Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, John 8 in verse 32. I can know what the truth is. I can read and I can study and I can understand Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter three, verses three to five, Paul said, "We wrote a four in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. It's been written, we can read it, and we can understand it. Well, not only can we understand it, Ephesians 5:17 says, "We must understand it. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, I can know that I understand the will of the Lord. Well that doesn't deny there are some things that are difficult. There is such a thing as the milk and the meat of the word. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 5? When a time should be that you're able to teach, you have need that someone teach you again that which is the first principles. And you have need of milk and not of strong meat. There's a contrast between those. I recognize that. And Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. I think I know some of those passages, they're hard. But I'm here to tell you that heart is not the same as being impossible. Doesn't mean it's impossible to understand. You see, the problem in doing what God says is not in understanding what God says. The problem is just doing what God says. Do you think the prophet had a problem understanding? What does he mean by not drinking water? What does he mean by not eating bread? What does he mean by not returning by the same way you came? Oh, he understood. In fact, he could explain it himself. The problem is we're driven by our own will and we're not submitting and yielding to the will of God. That was the point in Romans chapter 10, 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For they being ignorant, which means they ignored God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They ignored God's plan and made up their own. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, Mark 18, verse 34, you must deny yourself. That means you suppress your will and yield to the will of God. Several are here from El Bethel and they've heard me tell this story several times, but several years ago one of our members took the wind out of my cell after preaching one Sunday. I was laboring long and hard in the sermon, trying to sow, we we need to learn, we need to read, and we need to study, and we need to know the scriptures. We need more knowledge. This older brother came out and he said, that ain't our problem. We already know more than we're doing now. And he's right. The problem isn't understanding. The problem is doing. But here's the second lesson we learn. I want us to consider, secondly, from First Kings chapter 13, that what the Lord says do is something that's easy to do. The commands of God are not all that hard to follow. Not only can we understand it, but what the Lord says is easy to do. Now, let's look at our text in verses 9 and 10. How hard was this to follow? At verse 9, there were three simple rules. Do not eat bread. Do not drink water and do not return by the same way you came. So when he was tempted and invited, come home with me and I'll give you water and I'll give you bread. He said, I can't do that. So what did he do? He just didn't go. Not at verse 10. In fact, he went another way. He didn't return by the same way he came. It was easy to follow, wasn't it? Wasn't hard. You see, some think it's really hard to do what's right and stay faithful. I don't know if you ever hear that, but I hear that sometimes frequently. That, you know what, it's just hard these days. It's hard raising kids in this environment. It's hard living the Christian life in the world we live in. You think it was any easier in the days of Abraham? Would you have liked to lived in the first century? Would it have been easier to raise your children in the first century? You think you can pick out a Bible time, maybe in the days of Noah, maybe the days of, of Daniel, the days of the dividing, maybe the judges would have been a better period. Would that have been a great time? See, it's just so hard to be faithful, they think. But I'm here to tell you that we can do whatever the Lord commands. Otherwise, otherwise, the blame is on God for giving requirements we can't obey. See, if it's really hard to live the Christian life and I just can't do it, then what I'm saying to God, God, you made it too hard for me. It's your fault that I'm not doing any better than I am. John would say the commandments of God are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. It's a picture that it's not so heavy that you can't bear the burden. It is so burdensome. You're giving me a heavier load. I can't carry this load, Lord. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, there's some difficulties, all right, but it's doable is the point. This is fascinating to me in Romans chapter 10. The Jews use language like this as you're turning to Romans chapter 10. The Jews use language that something that was difficult, they would talk about it being far away out of their reach. As if they're striving for it and reaching for it and they just can't attain it. But something easy, they talked about being near. Let's see what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. His whole point in this section, is salvation is close and nearby and it's easy. It's within your reach. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness of faith, which uh, speaks in this way, do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. You see, that'd be hard. Or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. That's out of your reach but what does it say the word is watch this now near you it's near you even in your mouth and in your heart it's close by it's within your reach it's easy it's as easy as reaching in your mind and using it and using your tongue to speak and say i believe jesus to be the christ the son of god that was the illustration in the context by the way and so his point is it's near it's within your reach the commandments of God are not all that hard. The difficulty comes when I'm trying to do what I want to do and I'm also trying to do what God wants me to do and I'm trying to make the two work together and it doesn't work. That's what makes it hard. Here's something else I learned from this context. I learned this powerful lesson and that is that men of God can be wrong. I learned that men of God can be wrong. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Back in our text in 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, now at verse 11. The text says, uh, um, there was the old prophet. I'm just identifying who we're talking about. And now then, at verse 18, he said, I too am a prophet of God. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. So number one, he claimed to be a prophet. Number two, he said, the word of the Lord has been delivered to me. And then he gave his message, but the text says he lied to him I want to tell you it's easy to think that a man that's in the know about bible things would not mislead us there are those who do not want to do their studying for themselves as to what's right and what's wrong and what position is true and which one is false I'll let someone that's in the know do that for me see brother so-and-so he uh, He's kind of in the know about things he studies more than I do and I'll accept him his his words good enough for me And he wouldn't mislead me see he's a good student of the word He wouldn't mislead me because you see he's preached for 50 years and he knows his bible better than anybody I know and he would not mislead me at all in fact I know of some that have degrees. Maybe he's got a master's or a doctorate and, and he teaches and lectures on the Bible and he knows his stuff about that. He wouldn't mislead us. He might be a professor. He's written a number of books. Very educated. How could he mislead us? And we've heard him and we've known him for years and he's an honest man. How could he mislead me? But I want to suggest to you that if he is a man... He is fallible. Notice this carefully in the context. The old prophet was wrong in what he said, verse 18. The young prophet was wrong in what he did, verse 19. Here were two men of God that were wrong. One in what he said and one in what he did. And both knew better. Both knew better. And I'm learning from that, that men of God can be wrong. There are such people as false teachers. I don't hear a lot about false teachers sometimes in religious discussion. Now among brethren we do, but we don't even hear it among brethren like we used to. I don't think false teachers have ceased. We just (laughs) quit talking about them. And it's like everybody who's religious and teaches, they must be good people. But there are people who are false teachers. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 15. This is in the sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is winding down with the invitation section, encouraging people to come into the very kingdom he's been lecturing about. And notice at verse 15 that he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in chief clothing. There are going to be people who try to keep you out of the kingdom. So be careful about that. Second Peter chapter 2 and in verse 1 if I might paraphrase says there are false prophets among us today Just like there were people in the Old Testament time had false prophets among them misleading them telling them the wrong thing There were some who would come along first Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 who would depart from the faith speaking lies and hypocrisy Telling people things that were not true There are such people that we could label them as being false teachers So here's what we need to do. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says we need to study and compare it by the word. Here's what the Bereans did. They were noble, in fact more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to see if the things were so. What does that mean? That means when they'd listen to a man preach and teach they would open up their scrolls and they'd look at that and say you know what let's see if Isaiah really said what he says Isaiah said. And so I'm learning a very powerful lesson from 1 Kings chapter 13, that men of God can be wrong. Your preacher can be wrong. My preacher can be wrong. My commentator could be wrong. My friend could be wrong. The brother that I love dearly, who's taught me so much, could be wrong. Men of God can be wrong. But let's notice another lesson we learn. I learned from this story of the two prophets that intelligent people can be misled intelligent people can be misled now let's consider the fact that the young prophet was misled obviously but we know that because the text says he knew what he was supposed to do not eat bread not drink water no return by the same way he came but he did he was misled But I'm here to tell you that it was not because he was ignorant or lacking in intelligence. In fact, he was a prophet and had been speaking the truth. And it taught the truth and so acknowledged by the old prophet before it was through. It was not a matter of intelligence. It is possible for good people to be wrong. Just because someone is wrong in their belief doesn't mean they're not a good person, doesn't mean they're not intelligent, it doesn't mean they're not smart. smart. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, let's take the Jews as a case of being open-minded. The very Jews who came to Pentecost. Now when I get a little further in the context, Acts chapter 2 beginning about verse 21, some of these people there were the very people who had cried out, crucify him, crucify him, thinking they did the right thing. They come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, not thinking, you know what, we're going to obey this Lord. They think they did the right thing. They get there and they hear a sermon, not like they thought they were going to hear. It's about how Jesus was raised from the dead. And here's the evidence, the empty tomb. And we have witnesses to the fact. And there's the fulfillment of prophecy. And having seen that, they changed and became believers in Christ. And about 3,000 obeyed the gospel. That was an open mind if there ever was an open mind. That means they were wrong about crucifying Jesus, weren't they? That means they were wrong when they said crucify him, crucify him. That doesn't mean they were bad people. It just simply means they were misled. Good people can be wrong. Paul was a good man. Evidence he was a good man is what he became. The honesty with which he accepted The truth. The stories of his conversion found in Acts nine, Acts twenty-two, Acts twenty-six shows that he was a man who was persecuting the church, voicing his opinion they should be put to death, carting them off to prison, and yet he thought he was doing the right thing the whole time. It is possible for good people to be wrong. It's possible to be deceived. The all unrighteous deception among those who perish, we'll come back to that passage in its context in a moment. Now, when that happens, that's not a reflection of intelligence. And so if you're sitting here tonight and sometime or another, you begin to realize, you know what, the things that, that, uh, where I go to church, what they taught me is wrong because that's not what the Bible says. The thing my preacher was preaching about the other day, I'm finding out that's not true because that doesn't fit here. That doesn't mean you're not a good person. That doesn't mean you're not intelligent. It means you're being honest when you see the difference in truth and error is what that means. Here's something else we learn from this context. I learn that it makes a difference what one believes in religion. What a powerful lesson to learn here. It makes a difference what one believes in religion. Did it make a difference? Well, let's see. We'll come back to the context here in just a moment. The common thought in the religious world, in fact, when I say common, I mean most of our religious friends and neighbors believe it makes no difference what you believe. As long as you are sincere and you believe in Christ, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. If you're sincere, you believe in Christ, it doesn't make any difference what church you go to. It doesn't matter what doctrine you believe. It doesn't matter what you practice. None of that matters. It makes no difference what you believe. But I want to see that it made a difference what the young prophet believed and did Let's go back to our text in case we have forgotten something go back to verse uh, 18 and 19 Remember he knew what the truth was he'd understood the truth Do not eat bread do not drink water do not return by the same way you came But the old prophet said come back with me and an angel of god told me you could Now verse 18 notice the last few words, but he lied to him Verse 19, what did he do? He went back and he ate bread in the house and he drank water. He did exactly what he was deceived into believing to be the truth. Footnote. False doctrines have consequences because false doctrines lead to false actions. Get that fixed in your mind. Because I don't tell you, someone says, I don't see any problem with brother so-and-so. He teaches error on divorce and remarriage. What's the big deal? His false teaching leads to false actions, what it does. It's exactly what it does. Just like this false prophet, he said, come back with me. And an angel told me, and that's according to the word of the Lord. And that's exactly then what the young prophet did. False doctrine leads to false action. Leads to sin. Now notice beginning at verse 20. We're trying to establish this point. It made a difference what the young prophet believed and did. You remember what happened beginning at verse 20? The prophet said, you didn't obey the word of the Lord. And because of that, you're going to die. And I'm paraphrasing that, of course. And a lion came out and killed him because of that. When the old prophet heard about it, he said, that was that man that was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Remember that? It made a difference what he believed. It made a difference what he practiced. Now, let's talk about the difference that it makes. Let's open our Bibles. If you don't turn to any other text tonight, even if you didn't turn with us to 1 Kings chapter 13, I would encourage you get this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. It's a powerful passage. And here's, I want you to notice two things in this passage. Watch for two things. We're going to look at a number of points, but watch for two things. That it makes a difference what you believe. Number one, watch for that. Watch for this, the difference that it makes. That it makes a difference, number one. The difference that it makes, number two. So let's see what the text says. Beginning at verse 10, we're going to look at that verse two or three times. It contrasts the lie to the truth. It contrasts the lie to the truth. All unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God would send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. There's a contrast to the lie and the truth. This lie is not just any lie that someone may tell you. If I stood before you and told you the wrong age that I am, I've lied to you. But that's not the lie he's talking about. This truth is the gospel truth. And the lie is anything contrary to the gospel truth. Now let's look at the text again. Look at your text and let's read verses 10, 11, and 12. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. And we're going to read it again. But I want you to notice now that what we have on the side of the lie, some are deceived. Some are those who do not love the truth. They are deluded, according to verse 11. They believe a lie, according to verse 11. They do not believe the truth. They have pleasure in unrighteousness. What does that lead to? What's the consequence of that? They perish and they are condemned. On the side of the truth, here are those who love the truth and they believe the truth. What's the consequence of that? They're saved according to verse 10. Now I want you to read with me and I want you to notice on the board. We're going to check off and i want to see every point is found in our text. Let's start at verse 10 now. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish... Because they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. That's verse 10. Now let's get verse 11. For this reason, God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, verse 12, verse 12 says that they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Every point's found in our text, isn't it? Here's what I see. Those who are deceived and believe a lie and are deluded and did not believe the truth perish and are condemned. Those who are saved are those who love and believe the truth. Does it make a difference what you believe? I'm seeing two things. Remember the two things we're watching for? I see that it makes a difference and I'm seeing the difference that it makes. It makes a difference in salvation and damnation. Does it make a difference? Oh yeah, it makes a difference. Big difference. It made a difference with a young prophet. Now, if it makes a difference what you believe, if it makes a difference what you believe, then the questions and the issues that divide the religious world are of utter importance. You may talk to a friend or neighbor and they said, Oh, th- those issues don't, uh, about that we are differing over in religion, what we do in worship, what we have to do to be saved. Whether the Bible is inspired, those are not really, but long as you're sincere and believe in God and believe in Christ. Well, that might be all right if it doesn't make a difference. Well, we just saw it didn't make a difference. And if it does make a difference, then all of those questions that divide the religious world are important. You see that question of is Jesus the son of God? It makes a difference which which side of that you're on. Is the Bible inspired? It makes which difference which side you're on on that. Can a child of God so sin as to be lost? makes a difference which side you're on. Is baptism essential? Is repentance essential? It makes, which side, makes a difference which side you're on. Because it makes a difference what you believe. Furthermore, everyone can't be right. That is, those who believe and teach things different, they all can't be right. In other words, the one who says Jesus is not the son of God and the one who says he is the son of God, they both can't be right. They both can't be right. The one who says, you know what? Repentance is essential. None said, oh, no, no. Repentance is not essential. They both can't be right. One who says baptism is essential. The one says it's not. They both can't be right. One says the Bible is inspired. None said, oh, no, it's not inspired. They both can't be right. Because it makes a difference what we believe in religion. Last of all, we learn from the story, of the two prophets, that the sincere can become and be disobedient. Let's go back to verses 18 and 19. The sincere can become and be disobedient. That was certainly the case of this young prophet. Let us at verse 18, verse 18 of first Kings chapter 13. He was told by the word of the Lord, at least that was what the claim. The prophet said, this is by the word of the Lord. I, I, he told me to bring him back to your house, bring me back, bring you back to my house that you may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Now, verse 18, verse 19, he went back with him and ate bread in his house and he drank water. He fell for it. All indications are he was sincere in thinking this prophet had told him the truth. And what I want to tell you is the young prophet was sincere in what he did, yet he was still disobedient. Look at verse 21, the statement made at verse 21, that while they're still sitting at the table, The word of the Lord did come to the old prophet this time. And he said, thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord. All indications were he was sincere in what he did at verse 19. I have no evidence otherwise. You may think he was not sincere, but I don't have any evidence of that. But verse 21, he says, the word of the Lord now has come to me and he told me, you have been disobedient. Look at verse 26. When the men of the city came and brought the body or told about the body being out there on the road He said it's the man of god who is disobedient to the word of the lord. That's twice. He said that What am I learning from that the sincere can be disobedient paul was sincere while he was opposing christ He said i've lived in all good conscience before god unto this day And you remember proverbs chapter 14 in verse verse 12 There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death Here's what that means. That means it's possible to be sincerely wrong. Someone said, oh, I'm, I, if I'm wrong, I, I'm sincere in that. I, I wasn't, I haven't, uh, I didn't do that on purpose. I didn't go the wrong direction. On, I didn't miss, uh, I wasn't misled on purpose. No one said that. The sincere can be wrong. And maybe we are sincere, but maybe we are wrong in what we, we may believe or what we may practice. First Kings chapter 13, alas, my brother, what a statement to make to someone he'd lied to, misled him. He was killed and then he had him buried in his own tomb and said, I want to be buried with him. And then he mourned and said, alas, my brother. Interesting. What do you learn from that story? I learned some very fundamental lessons. The word and the instructions of the Lord are clear. They're very clear. And I learned, secondly, that what the Lord says is easy to do. And I learned, thirdly, the men of God can sometimes be wrong. And I learned intelligent people can be misled. And I learned that it makes a difference what one believes. And I learned the sincere can be disobedient. Powerful, practical lessons from two prophets. There may be one here present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? While well, together we stand and sing.